Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight because of the shed blood of Christ our Savior. Amen. So for the first three Wednesdays of December, we're looking at uh, women who populate the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. These are the mothers of Jesus, the foremothers of Jesus. We're doing this over three weeks because the fourth Wednesday is so close to Christmas that we thought it might interfere. So we're concluding this. Uh, We have to leave Bathsheba out. She's the fourth woman in the genealogy. But We're looking tonight at uh, Tamar, is the way you correctly pronounce it. Most of us just say Tamar. Uh, Next week, Rahab, and then Ruth on the third week. And uh, the fourth installment will be Mary. That will be the fourth Sunday in Advent. We will cover Mary at that point. But uh, Tamar, Rahab, and uh, Ruth are all, as far as we know, they're all Gentiles. Ruth definitely was Gentile. Uh, Rahab, uh, most probably, and uh, Tamar most probably as well. And this Genesis chapter 38 has been called the most sordid chapter in the Bible. And it it really is something of a bizarre soap opera of sex for pay between Judah and his daughter-in-law in disguise. Now, Let's just rewind for a moment and remember that Judah is the fourth of 12 sons of Jacob. And Judah has become the firstborn because his three older brothers, that would be Reuben, Simon, and Levi, have all sort of disqualified themselves from the honor of being firstborn by their sinful behavior. And that's a whole other story. But Judah becomes the firstborn. He becomes the leader of Jacob's clan. And that becomes evident as you read through Genesis, the later chapters. Uh, Judah is definitely the leader of his brothers. He is preeminent. And he will give rise. From his body will come kings and prophets and, most importantly, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. So, Judah is a big deal. He is like a prince. And we read at the beginning of Genesis 38 that he marries a Canaanite girl. Now, she remains nameless because she doesn't really play a big role in the story. But she does give Judah three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. All right? So, Judah's the firstborn of Jacob, Ur is the firstborn of Judah. When Ur becomes of age, Jacob seeks a wife for her, and she had to be something special for his firstborn, and he selected Tamar. So, they become husband and wife, but we read in the text... Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord just took him out. The one who gives life can take life as well, and who can argue with him? 
It's his call, not ours, not ours. So he dies. And it's important. Uh, this is in page 9 of your bulletin, Roman numeral 1. Tamar's right, or her destiny, is to be the matriarch of Judah's tribe and the mother of the Messiah. Judah's wife dies nameless. She leaves the story. And so Tamar expects a position of importance in this important family. She has, or she looks forward to, an important seat at the table in Judah's household. But Ur dies. The Lord takes him out. And so Tamar becomes a widow without children. Now, under any other circumstances, it would be grossly immoral for a brother to have sex with his brother's wife. But in this case, where a brother dies childless, back in this day and age, it's appropriate to have the next in line serve as a husband for the widow and to produce an heir for the deceased husband. That's the idea. And so Judah does the right thing. He calls upon Onan to perform his duty. But Onan knows something that you and I need to be aware of. That is, number one, whatever son comes from this union of Onan and Tamar, whatever son comes of that union will not be Onan's son. He will be considered Ur's son, although Onan has to support him and fund his growing up. But not only that, whoever is the firstborn gets half of the father's estate. So Judah would have received half of Jacob's estate. Ur would have received half of Judah's estate. The other sons divide up what's left. But the firstborn gets the lion's share. And Onan is now the firstborn. But if Tamar produces an heir by him, that child becomes the firstborn, and Onan loses the lion's share of the inheritance. He knows this. And so this is why he acts deceitfully. Okay? And if you take a look at, this is verse 9 in your reading. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, not just once, but repeatedly, he's going in, pleasuring himself through her, but denying her what she's owed, and that's a child. So it's kind of a crude form of birth control, but that's what Onan is doing. And so the Lord takes him out. This is wicked in the sight of the Lord, especially when you realize the importance of Judah's line. It has to continue. And so the Lord's displeased with Onan. He kills him as well. So Tamar is now once again a widow and a childless widow on top of it all. So letter B under part two, Tamar is wronged. Part B concerns Judah's dishonesty his dishonesty. You see, he blames Tamar for the death of his two sons. He thinks she's bad luck. She is a bad omen. She's bad news. I'm not going to give my third son to her. Something bad may happen to him as well. 
And so, effectively, he blames Tamar for the death of his two sons. He is in denial about the wickedness of Ur and Onan. He's in denial about it. And isn't this the way you and I behave as well? When someone near and dear to us commits a fault, we're sort of blind to it. We excuse it. But when someone else who's not as near and dear to you and me commits the same fault or something similar, we want to charge them guilty. So Judah is blind to the wickedness of his own sons. He blames Tamar for their deaths. This is why he acts deceitfully and effectively he abandons her. You take a look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So in other words, you, Tamar, will be betrothed to Shelah. That's, that's effectively being married, except I haven't given Tamar to you yet, and I'm not going to. So he condemns Tamar to a life of widowhood and childlessness. He's not going to give Shelah to her, or give her to Shelah. He won't do it. And you have to remember, children were your social security in those days. And perhaps a more reliable form than what we have today, I don't know. But they were your social security. And so Tamar, through no fault of her own, is in a very difficult position, especially, and she comes to realize that eventually, he's not going to give me to Sheila. I won't have children. I'm trapped. Judah holds all the cards. Okay. He has all the say. She has none. She must do as she's told. So, point number two, he abandons her. Let her see. This is an injustice, and injustice has consequences. It has consequences for Judah. Judah's lineage is now in jeopardy. His own descendancy is jeopardized. To commit an injustice to someone else is actually to put yourself at a disadvantage. And that's one of the lessons here. And I have a quote from Alan Dershowitz. Alan uh, Dershowitz, the lawyer, uh, wrote a book, The Genesis of Justice. It's his take on several of the stories in the book of Genesis. And this is what he writes. The very existence of the Jewish people and of the Messiah who descend from Judah is now at risk and in the hands or more precisely, the empty womb of Tamar. So, virtually all of the Jewish people today are descended from Judah and Tamar. And if Tamar doesn't conceive, there's no Jewish people and there's no Messiah. So, that's the situation Judah has put himself in. None of Judah's sons are having children. That's the problem. Point number two, 
Tamar cares more about Abraham's offspring than does Abraham's offspring. She wants children. She wants to be a part of this family. She's, she's fighting to be a part of the family, but she must do as she's told. She wants there to be a family. She cares more about Judah's offspring than Judah does, evidently. Letter D, Tamar acts. She risks her reputation and her own life to ensure Judah's lineage. So she's betrothed, that's as good as married, to Shelah, but she won't be given to Shelah. And so like Esther in the Old Testament, she risks her life for the Jewish people. And in this case, she risks her life in order to bring them into existence. And the Messiah as well. And so point number one, these are the verbs now in, in verse 14. She took off her widow's clothing she covered herself with a veil. She wrapped herself up. And, and I think, you know, <laughs> she's probably going full-on burqa here. You know, if you, if you see some of these women in the Middle East, I mean, all you can see is, is a slit for their eyes. That's about it. And she may well have been veiled to that extent. And, and she sits by a place where she knows her father-in-law will be. Now, point number two, Genesis 38 is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? It's describing what people did at a certain time, a certain place. It's not a prescription for behavior on your part or mine. We don't do things like this. We should not do things like this. I want to make it very clear. It's simply a descriptive passage. It's not a prescription for any of us. But she's putting her life at risk because being married, or as good as married, for her to be involved in an adulterous relationship will mean being stoned to death. And if you were the daughter of the high priest and you committed immorality, you would be burned. Well, Judah is prescribing that. Once he finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he says, bring her out and let her be burned. She's, she's important. She'll be burned. She'll be an example to other women. But Tamar has played her cards wisely. She knows she must be the mother of Judah's heir. That's her calling in life. She can't do this with any other man. She's, she can't go out and seek any other man. She must bear Judah's heir. So to Judah she will go deceptively. Roman numeral three, Tamar is righted. Letter A, Judah. Now Judah is judge, jury, and executioner. Judah declares Tamar righteous despite her behavior, despite the deception. He declares her righteous. And it's, it's sort of, someone described her action as a faithful deception. A faithful deception. She fulfilled God's will deceptively 
in the only way she could. And sometimes life is like that. Sometimes we are faced with choices where neither or none of the choices on the table are good choices. But we must choose the lesser of two evils. And I think that's what's going on here. Judah declares Tamar righteous despite her behavior. And let her be, Judah's greater son, Jesus, declares us righteous despite our behavior. Romans chapter 5, St. Paul writes that we are justified, we are declared righteous by Christ's blood. His blood shed on our behalf. Judah's son declares us righteous. And let her see, doing the right thing, and by right thing, I mean the right thing in God's eyes, doing the right thing in God's eyes, regardless of the personal cost, reveals our connection, our lineage to Jesus, the righteous one. John wrote in his first epistle, whoever does righteousness is righteous, just as he, Christ, is righteous. We're cut from the same bolt of cloth. Jesus Christ is both the root and the fruit of Abraham, Tamar, and David. He's the source and the result of all of those ancestors of his. And I love the way Jesus puts it. This is one of the last verses in Revelation. Jesus describes himself as the root and the branch of David. By his divinity, he's the root of David. He creates all things, including David. But according to his humanity, he is the branch of David. He's the fruit, the offspring of David and of Abraham. This is why he said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. That's his divinity, you see. But he's also child of Abraham. That's his humanity. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. We say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so you can imagine Tamar as the tree and Jesus as the apple. Because Jesus, regardless of the personal cost, will do the right thing. He will go to the cross for you and me. Despite what it means to his reputation and to his life, he's like Tamar. But Jesus is the tree and Tamar is the fruit. He creates all things, including Tamar. Tamar is the result of who he is from all eternity. The scriptures speak well of Tamar and of her descendants. In the book of Ruth, chapter 4, this is after Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife. And the people of the village, this is... Um, Bethlehem. They say, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And in Nehemiah, the descendants of Perez, the son of Tamar, are all they are described as all outstanding men. And Tamar herself, I think, foreshadows the gospels. 
in which Gentiles are often more faithful than the people of Israel themselves. The Roman centurion, you know, he has this servant who is ill, and Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And the Roman says, no, 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 I don't come under my roof. Just say the word, and he'll be well. And what does Jesus say? I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You know, last week, the Thanksgiving Eve service, we heard of the, the ten lepers who were healed by the Lord. But only one came back to thank God at the feet of Jesus and he was a Samaritan, he was a non-Jew. And then there's the Canaanite woman as well, whose daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. And Jesus puts obstacle after obstacle in her path, and she just hops over every single one. And finally, our Lord says, woman, great is your faith. A Canaanite. And, and Tamar is really the prototype for, for all of that. She believes in the importance of Judah's lineage, even if Judah doesn't give it a passing thought. So the central thought in this chapter of Genesis, and by the way, I'd have to say next to the four Gospels, Genesis is by far my favorite book. I encourage you to spend a lot of time there, even if one or two of the chapters might be considered bizarre or sordid in the estimate of some. But, but the central thought in Genesis 38 is this. It is Tamar's right to be the mother of Judah's heir and then her successive frustrations in that regard and her eventual victory. Like her descendant Jesus, she will do what is right in God's eyes regardless of the cost to her reputation or to her own life. Indeed, the apple doesn't fall far. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.